how, how that's um, a really big, uh, important moment for, for the disciples, for the apostles. Anybody remember why? That's, that's a big change for them when Jesus ascends back into heaven. Yes, it's the first time they've ever been Christ followers without Christ. Sorry, it's really aggressive. I don't know if I'm loud or not. I get excited. Um, it's the first time that they've been Christ followers without being in the very presence of Christ. So without the, the daily guidance of Christ, uh, they're still called to be Christ followers, but now Christ has left them. Uh, but before Christ leaves, he, he tells them something really important. And, and what's that? He's going to return. And in the meantime, before he returns, they're going to go to Jerusalem and wait for... The Holy Spirit. There we go. So, so he, he's ascending back to heaven, and he's telling his people that he's going to come back. And, but in the meantime, they're to go to Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus was killed, the very place that they had fled from. And they were to wait there for the Holy Spirit. And through waiting there and, and receiving the Holy Spirit, they would be a part of ushering in God's kingdom into the world. And so they go back, and, and they're waiting, and they're praying, and they're praying. And Jesus is faithful to his promise as the Holy Spirit descends upon his people. And I think that's a really powerful moment, and I, I don't think we can emphasize this enough in the series, but, but that moment where the Holy Spirit descends on the believers, that's still true today. We as believers still have the power of the Holy Spirit in us and with us today. The very presence and power of God resides within us today. And I don't think we can stress that enough, but, but the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers, and what happens next? They're mocked, right? They're accused of being drunk. So they're willing to, to look so foolish for Christ, they go out and they start speaking tongues, and they gather this big crowd, this, this crowd of, of people from all over the world, different, different parts of, of the Roman Empire who are all Jewish people, and they start speaking in different tongues, and everyone's very confused at what's happening because these people shouldn't know my language, but they're speaking my language, and, and I can understand it. And so they're, they're very confused at what's going on, and the people openly mock them. But then from that, we see a transition into Peter. And Peter gives the first big witness to Christ, what Christ's life was about, what Christ's life meant, what his death meant, and what the resurrection meant, and that he'll come back again one day. And what's the moral of Peter's witness to Christ's work on this world? What's the moral of the sermon that Peter gives in Acts chapter 2? Do what? Accepting responsibility. Yes. So he, he emphasizes that, that you, you, were so, you were so distracted from what we were supposed to be calling to. The, the Jewish people at the time knew that there was a Messiah coming. And when he came, that, that with him would come the kingdom of God. But they were so distracted, they were so unfocused, that they missed it. And they not only missed it, but they crucified the one who was supposed to be bringing in this new era, this new kingdom of God. But... To the upswing of that, what, what Peter says next is that there's still a chance to go back and reclaim that. Because we serve a Savior, we serve Jesus, who offers forgiveness and grace and mercy. So even though you've missed it, you've missed the big moment that you've been waiting for, Jesus still extends his grace and peace and comfort to you. And, and, and that's where we want to pick up today, is the very end of that sermon. Um, it's in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. That's where we're going to be spending our time tonight. Right before that, though, we, we, we hear the result of Peter's teachings. Um, it says in verse 41, Those who accepted his message, the message that Jesus had come, was the Messiah, was killed by them, but still offered them grace and forgiveness if they were to repent and be baptized. He says, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And so tonight what we're going to focus on is we're going to focus on that number of 3,000 recent converts the apostles and the disciples, and what happens next in this story. Right? This, is, this is a really 
powerful moment. This is a really impressive moment in what's happening because in this moment, Jesus has more followers than he's ever had before and he's no longer on earth. In this moment with the conversion of 3,000 believers, Jesus has more followers than he's ever had before and he's no longer on earth. And so we're going to look and see what happens next. But before we do that, I really want to take some time to put ourselves into the shoes of those 3,000 believers. So, so just a couple of quick things about those people. They had all come from all over the world to Jerusalem to be at the temple um, for a special festival. Does anybody know what festival? Pentecost. So they had all come to the temple to be there for Pentecost, and they've gathered together. And so there's all these different people from all across the Roman Empire who, who are Jewish, and they come to the, the temple. And they see all these people speaking in tongues. So these, these 3,000 recent converts, they, are, they come from different places, which means they come from different cultures, right? They all have different backgrounds. They've, they've grown up in different places with different cultures. There's also a language barrier between all these people, right? They don't speak the same language. That's why tongues were necessary. Whenever the, the believers start speaking in tongues and it draws in this huge crowd of people, the reason it draws them in is because they hear their own language being spoken. So you have a bunch of people who come from different cultures, who speak different languages. They're recent converts, which means they, they've never walked alongside Jesus like the apostles and like the disciples have. So they're very recent and fresh converts. And we have all these things playing into the factor of these, these 3,000 converted people. And the disciples and the apostles, they're all together. And we're going to read chapter uh, 2, verses 42 through 47, and just see what happens next. Starting in verse 42, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So we have this, this conversion, this, this sermon that's given by Peter, this witness to Jesus and his testimony, and these 3,000 believers are converted. And what picture do we see? What, what happens next? What do these 3,000 believers and the apostles and the disciples do? They form a church. They form a church. They form a community, right? And, and I think that, that we, we don't appreciate the power in that. We kind of skip over the fact that they form a community because to us, forming a church, forming a community, it just makes sense, right? I mean, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, you form a church, you form a community. It just makes sense. But just for a second, go back and think about those 3,000 believers. They all come from different places. They all, they all belong to different cultures. They all speak different languages. They're recent converts, and so they're trying to figure out what this Christianity thing is other than following Jesus, what, what it means to follow Jesus. And on top of all that... They're human beings. And we as human beings enter into conflict pretty easily. And so it seems as though the last thing you would expect these 3,000 people to be able to do is to form a community. They have all these things that should keep them from forming this community, right? I mean, they, they speak different languages. I mean, starting off, if all of us in this room came from different places and spoke different languages, that seems like a pretty big barrier to overcome, right? I mean, some of us here, we, we come from the South, but even then we're raised differently. Most of us in here come from the South, but some of you are raised to, to, to respect things that, that some of us aren't. Some of you are brought up in a certain way, and other of us are brought up in a different way. Some of us are, are from other countries, and, and you, your culture is completely different from ours. And so I think, I think this passage is really powerful and really applicable because the believers here, the recent converts, are facing all of the same things that we are, minus the language barrier. 
right? Because we come from different cultures where we've grown up to, to respect certain things that other people may not respect. We've grown up and, and, and we are, are, are believers that are trying to figure out what it's like to follow Jesus. And, and, and most importantly, we're humans. I mean, we enter conflict fairly readily. We're, we're good at conflict. It's what we do naturally. Um, and, and if you think about it, within the 150 people, 200 people we have in our community, I mean, there, there have been times where I've entered conflict with other people because we don't get along. I'm sure that you can relate to that. There have been times that you've entered conflict with other people because you don't get along. And that doesn't even get close to 3,000. Within 3,000 people that all speak different languages, that all come from different places, that are all new believers, you have to imagine that there were at least a couple of people who didn't get along. I mean, is that, is that feasible? Is that fair to say? I think that, I think that, that the, the church here, it seems like on paper, the community won't work. There's too many obstacles. Nothing, nothing will bring these people together. But what you see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, is exactly what you wouldn't expect. You see a community. You see fellowship. And the question that, that, that I have to ask myself, and I think that we should ask ourselves tonight, is why? Why is there a formation of community when it doesn't make any sense for there to be community? And, and you know, I, I thought about this a lot, and this was, this was a really tough question for me to come to the answer to. And I think the reason it's so tough is because there's only one thing that unites all these people. And that's Jesus. If you're asking why this community is formed, the answer has got to be Jesus, because they all differ in so many ways that nothing else can be the thing that's uniting them. They all come from, from different walks of life, probably different socioeconomic levels, maybe even different, different beliefs in Judaism. Judaism had, had broken into different sects, and, and all these people... Um, had followed different beliefs in Judaism, and so there was conflict about, about what God even wanted from us as people. So it, it seems like there shouldn't be any reason for them to form community, but they do. And the only thing that they have in common is Christ. And, and so I, I think that when we answer that that's, that's the why of the community that formed, it becomes, uh, we have to ask ourselves a few more questions. And, and whenever you, you think of this example of, of people that, that, that shouldn't get along on paper, but that do get along, I, I was trying to think of, of, of examples to kind of illustrate this point. Um, and I, I thought of uh, an instance where uh, two or three weeks ago, I, there was a, a talk on campus. And it was given by two different political philosophers. Now, we won't get into any political philosophy, even though I know you guys are dying to. Um, but so one of, them, one of them was extremely conservative, and one of them is extremely liberal. Right, and so when you think of an extremely liberal and an extremely conservative political philosophers getting together and giving a talk, you're probably thinking the same thing that I was, which was that there would be a debate. You know, it's these two guys strong-arming each other and shouting opinions and, and giving proofs and, and examples and counterexamples and trying to prove each other wrong. But that's not what the talk was about. See, these two guys, they are they're enemies. They, they, they aren't uh, disagreeing with each other in a hateful way. Instead, they're colleagues. They work together at Yale, and they often travel across the country and teach classes at Yale all about learning to embrace other people despite their differences, despite their differences in viewpoint, and get along. And, and so we see these two guys who on paper, it shouldn't make any sense that they get along. I mean, the, the first ten minutes of, of the whole talk was just them complimenting one another back and forth and, and talking about how much they respected the other person. It was kind of cute, actually. It was a really good bromance. Um, but but it, was, it, was, it, was, it was mind-boggling because on paper, these guys shouldn't get along, right? But here's, here's the kicker, is they were both Christians, both of them. And they referenced that openly in their talk, and they talked about that that's the reason they were to put aside their differences and, and approach 
the, the differences they had in opinion in mature ways, in ways that, that were, that were uh, cordial, in ways that, that encouraged discussion about topics instead of hateful language. These two guys are really close friends, and on paper it doesn't make sense, but in practice it does. And again, the answer we're forced to look at is because of Jesus. And I'm sure maybe you can think uh, of a similar example in your life. Maybe you can think of two people who shouldn't get along on paper, but they do in life because of Jesus. Something about Jesus and the way that he works in our lives is that he allows us to live in a community where it doesn't make sense on paper because there's too many things that should get into conflict there's too many things that should blow up. Our relationships should constantly be failing. But instead, we see successful community. I mean, look at the community in Acts chapter 42 through verse 47. They're not just surviving. They're thriving. They're selling possessions to take care of one another. They're meeting together in fellowship. They're breaking bread. They're listening to the apostles' teaching. They're not just a community that's kind of straggling along. They're a thriving community. And from the outside looking in, it's, it's a confounding community because you can't understand how these people have the unity that they have. And the answer that I'm forced to accept, at least, is that it's Jesus that unites them. That he's doing something in their lives that allows them to have the unity that they have. And so the question we want to ask now is, is how does this work? What is it that Jesus is doing that gives them this community, that gives them this ability to come together when everything on paper says that they shouldn't be able to. And, and, and I, want to, I want to turn to the scriptures and start to look through some of this because I think that the answer is revealed in scriptures. But we're going to start at the bottom and kind of work our way up of the list of what the Acts 2 church looks like. So the first big thing that sticks out to me is um, in verse 45, that they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Right? So they're very concerned with social justice. They're very concerned for caring for the people in, the mit, in their midst who don't have the ability to care for themselves. But here's the thing is that there's other, uh, there's other committees, there's other forms of, of community in, in our day and age that are committed to social justice. But they don't seem to have a unity that the church has. So to me, it, it, doesn't, seem like, it doesn't seem like the answer. Right? It's not a commitment to social justice that gives them the, the answer that they're looking for of unity. And, and you see in other places that they, they gather together, that they, they break bread, that they fellowship, that they pray. Uh, but, but each of these things don't seem to be the, the key to the unity that they have. I think the key to their unity comes in the very first verse in 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. So what, what, what was it that the apostles were teaching? The apostles' teaching, what was that? Yeah, the Jesus that you kill is the Messiah. They were witnessing to Jesus. They were witnessing to the life of Jesus, what he did and what it meant, and how it affected them here and now. And the first thing that we see about this church is that they devoted themselves to that teaching. They devoted themselves to the person of Jesus. Now, I think unity can only come about when everyone devotes themselves to something. Right? The reason that, that you get along with your friend is maybe because you devoted yourself to enjoying uh, video games. Maybe the reason that an that, that, um, you know, a, a, a on-campus organization thrives is because they've devoted themselves to being very prestigious in, in a certain field. But when we look at the church here in Acts chapter 2, it's very interesting to see what they devoted themselves to. 
Because they didn't devote themselves to an ideal. They didn't devote themselves to a concept or an emotion or even to a friend group or to a group of people. But instead what they devoted themselves to was a person. They devoted themselves to the person of Jesus Christ. I think that's where their unity comes from. They devoted themselves to being wholly involved and committed to Jesus Christ. And I think that's the key to their unity, is commitment in Jesus. And and if you look at the, the rest of the verses, what we see is when they commit to Jesus, that they also have to commit to fellowship. It's interesting, if if you read that first verse again, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. It's not an either-or situation. You don't either devote yourself to fellowship or Jesus' teachings, the man that Jesus was, his life, the things that he accomplished, what he did for us. Instead, you devote yourself to both. There's there's no either-or situation. If you devote yourself to Jesus, you're going to devote yourself to his people. And the reason is because if you're devoting yourself to Jesus, you're committed to the same life that Jesus has. When you decide that you're going to devote yourself wholeheartedly to Jesus, you're committed to the same life that Jesus had. And and I think that it's very interesting to see that play out because I, I think that that's one of our biggest struggles in community. I think when we, when we find ourselves at a lack of unity, when we find ourselves falling apart at the fringes, it's because we're not committed to Jesus. I think an advantage that the apostles have in this, in this community, even though they seem to have all these things stacked against them, is that it's abundantly clear that the reason that they are together, the reason that they have any hope at unity, is Jesus himself. I think it's a little less clear for us. It's really easy for us to commit ourselves to, to an institution, right? We can commit ourselves to Auburn University. And that's what unites us, is that we're all Auburn students. You can commit yourself to, to a region, we're all from the South. You can commit yourself to, to uh, you know, a, a major, what you're studying. We all get along because, you know, me and this person get along because we're both in the same major. You can even commit yourself to an outlook, whether you're conservative or, or, or liberal or, or any other number of views that you can take And I think it's really easy to fool ourselves into thinking that the the reason that we have unity is because any one of these things, instead of committing ourselves to Jesus. If our first and foremost commitment is to Jesus, then all these other things fall in line after that. But commitment to Jesus is where it starts. What you see is that the church committed to Jesus, and then after they had committed to Jesus, they were able to then fellowship with one another in a way that was pleasing to Jesus. They committed to Jesus, and then, and then they were able to have the selfless sort of nature that was necessary to sell their possessions and to give to those who were in need. And again, I, I think that our biggest struggle oftentimes is that we don't realize that Jesus is the thing that's uniting our community. We commit to other things before Jesus, and that's what affects our community in the way that it does. So the question I want to ask is, what things do we commit to before Jesus that affect our community? What things is it that we commit to before Jesus that has an effect on our community?
Personal agenda. Personal agenda? Okay, I think that's a good one. My, my, my schedule, whatever I've scheduled in there. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a big one. What else? Academics. Academics. I think that's a huge one. It's, it's very difficult to make time for people because we're so committed to getting a good grade so we can have a good job. What else? Being available. Being available. It's stressful to be available. I mean, we have so many commitments that we're juggling between being a student and maybe having a job and having friends that you want to hang out with that, that if there's someone that you feel like that, that, that Jesus is calling you to, you don't want to be available to that person. And so if you're not committed to Jesus, you won't make yourself available to that person. What else? Yeah. Uh, for me, it's the idea of a relationship. A relationship. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's tough because it's easy to, to commit to, to wanting a relationship and let that get in the way of friendships or, or commit to a relationship and let that get in the way of forming a friendship. And when I was thinking about this question, um, a lot of the same things came to mind. But I think one of the easiest things that's easy for us to prioritize before we commit to Jesus is to commit to a friend group. Right? To commit to a group of friends. And it doesn't matter how, how slim or how broad that friend group is. It can be the entire ACSE. I can commit to each and every single person in here. Or I can commit to, to an individual group of like maybe five or six people. Or I can commit to one person. But I think one of the things we struggle with the most is committing to a friend group. Committing to a group of friends. And the reason I think that's a struggle for us is because that's a good thing. Right? It's good to be committed to other people. That's what we're called to do. But here's the only problem. I think this is the problem with being committed to all those things that you, we all mentioned before we're committed to Jesus. And that's this. Is that our human nature is going to get in the way unless we're committed to Jesus first. All those things that we mentioned are good. A relationship is good. Getting good grades is good. Having a schedule is good. Uh, being available is good. And, and having other commitments that we're trying to juggle, if those commitments are of God, those things are good. But here's the thing, is that unless we're committed to Jesus, our outlook is always going to be me first. And that comes in grades that we're not willing to put aside, maybe getting a B or a C or maybe even a D on a test to be available to other people that are in need. And that comes to, to being in a relationship we're not willing to put on the line that if we're committed to Jesus, maybe that means I won't be in a relationship. Maybe it does. But if we're committed to Jesus, and if we're not committed to Jesus and we try to get that relationship, it's not going to be a healthy relationship. And, and even in a friend group, right? I'm committed to my friends, but if I'm committed to my friends and I'm not committed to Jesus first, it's always going to be a selfish relationship. It's always going to be me first. So that when, when someone else has a commitment, but I have a conflicting commitment, I'm always going to pick me. Or when someone wrongs me, I'm going to be so offended because how dare you? Because this is all about me. And, you know, we, we do a lot of tricky things and we, we kind of lie to ourselves and pretend that that's not what it's about when we put our friends above Jesus. But it is. The only way to commit to the things that we see in Acts chapter 42 through verse 47 in a good way is if we're committed to Jesus first. And the reason is because when you're committed to Jesus, you're committed to the same things as Jesus. And that means dying to yourself. 
And that's the hardest thing that we have to do as Christians every day, is to get up and not say me first, but you first. To not say, I'm going to get an A before I help you, but I'm going to help you, and then with whatever time I have left, I'll study. Not that I'm the most important one in this relationship, and if I'm not getting anything out of it, I'm going to cut it off, but instead, if this relationship is helping you, I'll do anything I can to sustain it. It's not about me first, it's about you first. And the reason that that we're committed to that and that we can make all these other things work is if we're committed to Jesus. I think that, that whenever people wrong us, we can't extend mercy unless we're committed to Jesus because Jesus was committed to extending mercy. And instead we're saying me first and we're not committed to Jesus first. When people wrong us, it's still all about us. And so I think what we see in the Acts chapter 2 church is that they were committed to Jesus in a way that was so powerful, that went above so, so many other things, that went above all else, that it allowed them to then commit to other things in a way that was good, in a way that was healthy, and in a way that eventually reached out to other people. In, in Acts chapter forty-two, verses or in Acts chapter two, verses forty-two through forty-seven, um, there, there's two different aspects I think of the community. I mean, the first one is that is that it's it's inward. It's talking about how they develop their community through commitment to Jesus, and the second half is about how they invited other people into that, into that community that was so confounding, so strange. And I think that um, what we see. And where, where, where it hits me the most, where it's the strongest, is in, is in chapter 2, verse 46. It says this, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So the reason I find this verse very interesting is because all these people are recent Jewish converts. Right, so in the Jewish culture, the temple was a place where the presence of God resided. The, the, the temple was a place where heaven met earth, where the very presence of God resided. But when you believe what Jesus had to say, when you're, when you're converted to Christianity, as these Jews were, you no longer believe that the presence of God is in his temple Instead, what you believe is the presence of God is in you through the Holy Spirit. And this passage is really interesting because we see a lot of things. We, we see the breaking of bread. We see social justice, the selling of property to provide for those in need. We see fellowship. We see love. We see the extension of grace and mercy. And in the Old Testament, if you're a Jew, the only place that happens is the temple where God's presence is. And so what we see is that when the Israelites are committed to Jesus, when they have a community that is committed to Jesus, first and foremost, what we see is that they're able to foster the presence of God in their very midst. Through through the, the, the selling of property, through the giving of mercy, through the giving of grace, and the reason they're able to do those things is because they're committed to Jesus. Um, And and again, I I think that this is extremely applicable to us. Because if we're a group that will commit to the same things that Jesus committed to, 
to showing grace, to showing mercy, even when it hurts, even when it leads to death on a cross, even when it leads to dying to ourself and our own selfish desires. If we are able to commit to Jesus through all of that, then what others see is a community that is loving, that is patient, that is kind. But more than that, when they come into our community, they come into the very presence of God Himself. When I was a freshman getting ready to come to college, the last thing on my radar was growing in my faith. I wasn't concerned at all with, with, with religion. Um, I, I had been a Christian for, for most of my life. I felt like I had checked the boxes. I had done my time. I kind of had the whole religion thing down pat. And instead, I was more interested in, in, in what, what, what kind of friends am I going to hang out with? Like, what am I going to do for fun? Who am I going to live with? Where am I going to live? Who am I going to spend my time with? Where am I going to make friends? I ask all these questions. What, what degree am I going to get? How are my grades going to be? How am I going to study so that I can get a good job? These were all the questions I was asking myself. And the very last thing on my radar was faith. And a commitment to Jesus. But the only thing that changed that was coming into the very presence of Jesus himself by coming into the presence of those who had already committed to Jesus. I came into to college not concerned with faith. And then I ran into a community that was committed to Jesus. And because of that, I was shown grace and love and what it meant to be committed to Jesus. I came in, into college shell-shocked and, and, and broken from a divorce of parents. And, and, and the only thing that was the answer to that was becoming into contact with people who were committed to Jesus and so they showed me the love and the care and the patience of Jesus. I was someone who struggled with, with sin and with doubt and with all these different things. And the only way I was able to overcome that was by coming into the presence of people who were committed to Jesus. And through that, the very presence of Jesus himself. And I was extended grace and forgiveness and love and mercy. But the only way we can extend that to other people is if we are willing to commit to the same things that Jesus commits to. Because when we commit to what Jesus committed to, we commit to dying to ourselves and saying, you first. And that's not an easy thing to do. The very last thing I want to highlight is um, in verse 46. They broke bread together in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the reason I think this is such a powerful note to end on is because it, it, the, this is the second part of a two-part series sent to this guy, Theophilus, written by the author Luke. And the first one is, is the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, Luke gives an account of Jesus in the Last Supper where Jesus breaks the bread and pours out the wine. He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And, and then he says, and I'll never partake of this meal again until we're reunited in a new heavens and a new earth. And again, the reason I think this is so powerful is that even though Jesus doesn't partake of this meal with us, anytime that we're together... 
and we break bread and we fellowship, Jesus' presence is with us in that moment. And we are in the presence of Jesus himself. And this is why spending time with one another is so important. This is why things like community group are so important. Because it's these small, intimate moments where you have fellowship with other believers, where you break bread with other believers, where you're vulnerable with other people, where you have a unity that can only be explained by full commitment to Christ above all else. It's only in those moments that we encounter the very presence of Jesus through our fellow believers. And that's not a thing that we have just now. But because of what Jesus did, it's a thing that will go on for eternity. But the question you have to ask yourself is, are you willing to die to yourself for the betterment of others? Let's stand and sing. common love for each other, a common gift to the Savior, a common